are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 137 is Brian Coleman. He has long been involved in the New York City music scene, becoming a rock journalist at age 15, and meeting folks like Jim Morrison and Nico. Took a summer job in London, hanging out with Nick Drake and Richard Thompson. Eventually fronted the band OK Savant in the late 80s, which broke up just as it was signed to a label. You're right now hearing The Book of Sleep by OK Savant. It was recorded in 1990 live at CBGB's, remastered for his New Year's Eve EP 2016. He's been a producer for groups like Olabel, Lucinda Williams, and Taj Mahal, and a number of international musicians. His first released solo album was 2008's All Fires the Fire. He's had two since then. We're going to be talking about Killing the Dead from Winter Close 2020, and She Said from The Opposite of Time 2016, then looking back to The Promise from that first album, and ending by listening to Wrong Birthday, another track from the new album. For more information, please see briancoleman.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to set up a small recurring donation that'll get you ad-free versions of all the episodes and bonus discussion for episodes like this one where I went on talking with Brian for longer than you're going to hear here. You'll even get to hear an extra song of his. I will have played a little bit of The Book of Sleep. I guess a recording going back to 1990 under my intro. So that was like the band, OK Savant, the band that almost was. I see Steve Holly from Wings, Sarah Lee Gang of Four. Is that the Vernon Reed of Living Color fame? Yeah, Vernon's a really dear friend. And there was a period right before Living Colors sort of hit where he was staying on my couch. And then I wound up having to leave my apartment for a while. I got held hostage in my elevator. And I wound up living in a loft that a cinematographer friend had on 19th Street in Manhattan. And it turns out he had filmed most of Werner Herzog's movies. So Vernon Reed and Werner Herzog were my roommates for a brief period. (laughs) That was a trip. Vernon's great. And, you know, he wasn't a real member of OK Savant. But whenever there was either a special show or when uh, our regular guitarist, uh, Larry Saltzman, had to go out of town, Vernon would fill in. And, uh, you know, we never rehearsed. Vernon would just come in and whatever he played was right. And sometimes what we played was wrong, but he was always right. So we want to get pretty quickly to the new 2020 material, but your career has such a strange arc. Can we characterize that a little bit? Am I right that you were already in music journalism before the OK Savant time? And I know you've done a lot of production since then. Your first actual solo album that we're going to talk about is from 2008, and you've only got three. The one that we're about to to move to is only your third. Three and a half. Okay, right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this version of the Book of Sleep, in fact, was remastered for the EP 2016's New Year's Eve. Did I get the major beats right there? I don't know if there's a differentiation between the major beats and the minor beats. I've always wanted to play music. I've always wanted to be in the same room with music. And as a kid, I basically stumbled into writing for rock magazines because it was a way of getting every record that existed. And, you know, when you're 15, 16 years old, that's the greatest thing in the world to have like records just appear at your door. So I did that. I I wrote for magazines because I could and because I, I had a facility for writing and because I was sort of a train spotter. I knew like the way some kids know baseball stats. 
you know, they'd get a baseball card and they'd be able to tell you everything that Whitey Ford had ever done. I sort of had that with records. I didn't study as much as I just assimilated all the information. And that wound up serving me well when I started performing because I knew the names of the people who had been playing harmonica for Paul Siebel or Jerry Jeff Walker. And I knew who the guitarist was on that Parliament Funkadelic record that uh, had fallen through the cracks. So I could call these people up. And first of all, they were in the phone book. And second of all, they weren't getting that many calls. So even if they didn't necessarily want to play with me, they would all talk to me, which was a guess. So is that pretty much how you track down this? I mean... Sarah Lee had played with Gang 4 and with Robert Fripp. This all sounds like I had a plan. The reality is I've sort of stumbled into almost everything. And I had a guitarist friend of mine that I worked with and played with who was sort of a genius, a guy named Paul Presti that you probably haven't heard of because he burned out and wound up, I mean, literally imploding. You talk about people going up in smoke, he exploded. And there was a little memorial that was put together for him at Kenny's Castaways, a club in downtown Manhattan around 1986. And I was asked if I'd play a couple of songs at it. And I was really nervous about playing solo and was trying to figure out what to do. And I, I went home and I got in the elevator, the same elevator that I was held hostage in. And there was a guy with a guitar there. And I'd seen him before and I'd talked to him a couple of times. His name was Larry Saltzman. Larry, um, at the time was playing in a band called the Major Thinkers and also with Peter Gordon's Love of Life Orchestra. And, you know, we sort of knew each other by sight, but not more than that. And without really thinking about it, I just sort of said, what are you doing tomorrow night? You want to play a couple of songs with me? And he just went, sure. So I suddenly had a guitarist and uh, I'd run into Sarah Lee a couple of times. I called her up and asked if she'd play bass. And Basically, the idea was we were going to do a one-off. So Sarah was in, Larry was in, and I didn't know that many drummers. And I called Jay Doherty, who I'd known for years and who'd been playing with Patti Smith and with Tom Verlaine. And uh, it turned out his drums were being stored at Kenny's Castaway, so it was easy for him. So I suddenly had the beginnings of a band. And we played a couple of songs and we just kept playing. It seems like this is in common with the way that you do things now, that you're immersed in music in various ways. And so you know all these people and you're a nice guy and, <laughs> and fun to talk to. And so it's easy just to, at least for, you know, if it doesn't involve a major commitment <laughs> to get great people to come and play with you. Is that kind of the way that the solo careers work with these three albums that sort of whenever you have enough songs, you can kind of raise your head from the the production, what actually provides is your day job. <laughs> is it the production? Is it the uh, the music journalism? It slips back and forth. For a while, I was a staff writer for Condé Nast. And for a while, that was an amazing gig because they didn't care how much money you spent. They didn't care what you did. And I sort of had a career with them as the guy who would go to places you couldn't pronounce and talk to people you'd never heard of, which was a really good gig. You know, I wound up going to... Uh, the Atlas Mountains in Morocco and going up to the village of Jajuka with Bill Laswell to record the master musicians of Jajuka and to talk with Paul Bowles and wound up traveling through the Caribbean and going across Siberia. It was a really, really interesting gig until the wall came down between advertising and editorial. And suddenly, whenever I would talk about what I wanted to do, they would start sort of going, gee, um, 
could you talk Madonna into going along? And it would be like, no, you know, that's not what I do. And after three or four years of, of being really, really well paid and really well treated, I was suddenly out on my ass. I started writing for uh, the Paris Review, which has been very, very good to me. And for a lot of different little magazines and putting together what I hope will be a book called How to Prepare for the Past. And for a while, I was getting some work writing music for films, not really supervising music for films, but being, I guess, sort of a, a know-it-all. Filmmakers would come to me with a movie that was already made where there was a scene where the music didn't work. And it was then my job to find something that would work. And that's a really fun job. You don't get credit. Your name isn't up there anywhere. But, you know, I did that for Bertolucci for The Sheltering Sky. I did that for Martin Scorsese for uh, Kundun. I've done this for in a lot of different, you know, situations. But basically, I sort of like being an amateur. I sort of like being on the sidelines. I'm not very good at the business end of things. And to be a real music supervisor, you really have to know how to make deals and you know how to squeeze money out of people. And I'm sort of better at it the other way. I'm sort of better at making sure that everyone gets paid. Most singer-songwriters have a tremendous ego that absolutely, I wouldn't be surprised. I've heard many that I've spoken to or interviewed that don't listen to anybody else's music because they're writing so constantly, you know, it would be interfering. But you are definitely more of a sponge and a participant in the music world, a know-it-all, a fan first. Say something about how this informs what we're about to hear. So Killing the Dead from Winter Clothes 2020. Can you say something about how this album project emerged at this time and what you were trying to do with this? I think one of the things that's been really a gift for me personally, but maybe a detriment for me professionally, is that it's not so much that I don't have an ego, but part of my work writing about music and looking at music has been exploring and finding music and musicians from different parts of the world. And what's gotten in my way in terms of promoting myself is Whenever I'm about to do a tour or make a record or have some sort of a personal statement that I feel is like, this is really me and this is really good, I run into someone who, to be honest, is better. And they may not be singing in English and they may not have a career in the States, but over the years I've gotten to be very friendly with, you know, for one, a singer in Algeria named Sheb Khaled, who is just a monster. His work is so beautiful and so strong, and he's sort of like the Beatles of the Middle East. And I've spent time with him, with Yusu Endur from Senegal, with Bookman Experience from Haiti. And what they're doing is not only musically really important, but culturally really important. And what I'm doing is important to me and maybe to my community. But when I look at it in the grand scheme, it's not at the same level. I'm not doing something that is going to change the life of a 15-year-old Arabic kids somewhere in the projects. And, you know, I have to say with the new work that I'm doing, because I've let sort of more people in and I've been able to integrate other people's ideas, I think I'm starting to do something that is genuinely worthwhile. But again, every time I start out to promote myself, I can't help but look over my shoulder and see that there's somebody else that needs to be brought along. And then looking at the title, Killing the Dead, and imposing it on what you just said, which just makes for a grotesque joke. 
Say something about before they actually hear this song in full, what this tune in particular is about. Yeah, Killing the Dead, I love. I mean, it's one of the, my favorite things that I've ever been involved with. This whole record was recorded with a wonderful guitarist and musician named Jimmy Zhivago, who produced the album with me and who was really my partner in crime in this. And Jimmy is one of the great unsung gems of the New York scene. And somewhere toward the end of recording this album, Killing the Dead was the last song we recorded. Really, right as we were finishing the record, I was really struck by the fact that Jimmy had given so much to the project and had added so much as a player, but he wasn't being credited as a composer. I mean, these were all my songs, but there was one song in particular that we were playing together and he just added a note to a chord that changed the whole song. It just opened it up. I mean, he didn't think anything of it, but it really resonated with me. And after we recorded it, I, I sort of went back to him and went, I want to give you some of the publishing on this song. It just feels like you changed it. You brought it to life. And that totally flipped him out because people don't do that. Songwriters tend to be mine, you know. We tend to be pretty protective of what we do. But I sort of felt like he'd been working with me so long and so hard and he'd given so much it felt right to give something back. And it sort of opened up a door that I didn't even know was there and I didn't know was closed. And he began just opening himself and opening some of his music to me. And he really, from that moment on, really wanted to collaborate on songs. And the dirty little secret is I don't really know how to collaborate. You know, I do now and then, but I'm not one of those guys that can go in a room with somebody and pick up a guitar and come out with a new song. It just doesn't happen that way. And Jimmy kept coming over with these ideas of, you know, what if we played this chord against that? And what about this? And the songs, I mean, probably would have been great, but they weren't great for me. And I felt really bad because he clearly wanted to be more involved and I didn't have a place for what he wanted to do. And he came over one afternoon and started playing this rhythm. And it felt like Pete Townsend of The Who playing Buddy Holly. It just had this really wide open ringing sound. And I just flipped and went, I can do something with that. And I started coming up with a melody and that turned into Killing the Dead.
Now, at the same time, I'd been reading this strange, really wonderful book by James Merrill called The Changing Light at Sandover. It's about the entire universe, but it's sort of about contacting spirits. And it's both very new agey and really wickedly funny. There's nothing sing kumbaya, let's all have rainbows in our hair about it. It's really about, which is all in verse form, is that the author and his lover decide on a really rainy weekend to use a Ouija board to contact W.H. Uh, Auden, the poet Auden, and try to find out if he's like getting up to real mischief in heaven, if he's like buggering angels and basically getting arrested. They wind up contacting some sort of a weird malevolent spirit that takes them through like the way in which the universe works. And then just as they feel like they've got a handle on the way everything is put together, they discover that the guy they've been talking to is essentially like a thug, like some sort of a spirit thug who hangs out outside of spirit nightclubs, you know, trying to sell Lucy's to people. They basically sell them a bad Oxycontin. They wind up getting into a whole other realm with these different spirit guides. It's really strange. But there's a certain point where one of the spirits talks about how the way that we've been using nuclear energy and nuclear power here is starting to kill spirit life and how spirits essentially have a maybe not bodies, but have like a, a corporality that allows them to incarnate. And that incarnation is now being threatened. And that's where I came up with the idea of killing the dead. The idea that, you know, the dead can be killed again, like in a really bad Halloween movie where, you know, someone gets slashed to bits and then reassembled and then slashed to bits all over again. Normally you're playing rhythm guitar on things, right? Did you, Jimmy came up with that initial rhythm on this though and passed that to you and then he did the lead electric stuff, is that right? That's right. Most of this record was really recorded with live basic tracks, you know, where Jimmy and I would be playing and Byron Isaacs would be playing bass in the control room and a guy named Chris Hines would be playing drums out with us. And, you know, we really were just going for feel. So I was singing at the same time that I was playing and that Chris was playing drums and Jimmy was playing both the rhythm and then overdubbing a lead. And I've got to mention Sid Straw came in and did the harmony with me. Sid has been my friend since forever. We go way back and I go way back with her since before she was Sid. She was Susan Straw. You know, she's sung on almost everything of mine at some point. And then this wonderful Irish-American uh, girl, Mary Askew Fendley. Mary Askew uh, was part of a group called Basque, which is just her voice and a, an acoustic bass. And their stuff is so beautiful and really sort of ethereal and earthy at the same time. You know, it sort of sounds like Hildegard of Bingen and uh, the Cocteau Twins having sex together. And she's doing those hiccups at the end, which uh, Jimmy hated. He wanted to get rid of them. And I just <laughs> went, nope, that makes the whole song. I want hiccups on everything I do from now on. So the rest of it, the cello and timpani, that was all overdubbed to kind of brighten it up? Yeah, the cello isn't really a cello. It's a cello sample that Glenn Pacha sent me online. And Glenn is a wonderful, wonderful keyboard player and one of my dearest friends. I produced his first album and he co-produced my my first album. Glenn is now, whenever she goes back on the road, he's now a Bonnie Raitt's keyboard player. And for the last couple of years, has been playing with Ry Cooter. Did he end up doing the organ or you ended up doing the organ on this? Actually, Jimmy ended up doing the organ on this. Oh, okay. This actually is a funny sort of mongrel track because Jimmy went in the hospital just as we were about to add the background vocals. 
And he never came out. And I was in the hospital with him every day. And he'd be there. And he he basically thought like, oh, he's going to be out in five days, six days. He was really excited about a reunion of the band Olabel that he had been in and trying to make sure that he could make the rehearsals for that. But he was given a drug that basically shut down his liver or what was left of his liver. Someone in the hospital made a, a really bad mistake and they couldn't get him out of it. It was horrible. I mean, I don't mean to bring the show down and bring us all into a, a dark place, but we were literally two sessions away from finishing the album and I had to step away from it. And I wound up going to Lisbon and working with some friends over there and just standing back from everything that I'd been doing. And it took me about a year to be able to come back. And then Glenn Patches sort of pushed me back into the studio and he brought in a guitarist named Chris Bruce who was wonderful. And Chris just moved to New York from L.A. He'd been playing with T-Bone Burnett and Sam Phillips and uh, I think Michelle and Degiacello. And he's annoyingly polite. He's very understated. And I was hoping he'd play on a couple of tracks, but he wound up playing on about seven of them and doing things that were almost invisible. You know, you almost didn't even know he was there, except when you took his parts away, the song would fall apart. You know, he was adding a foundational element that was really necessary. Little elements bubbling up under the surface. And uh, he's a gem. He just brought things to life. So between Glenn's uh, cello part and uh, Chris and then Tony Leone from Olabel coming in and adding the timpani, we, you know, we had a song and we had an album. Oh, so that little hand-muted electric guitar on here, that during so that's actually Chris? That's Chris. Okay. And he put in a lot of the stuff that if Jimmy had been alive, he would have added in his own way. And his own way would have been a lot sloppier and a lot looser. But Chris tied everything together with the spirit of Jimmy in mind and just made it swing. So did that feel good then when you're finally coming back to this, that you can use this to honor the memory of Jimmy as opposed to not wanting to look at the damn thing? I feel like this is almost a duet record. This is almost, you know, a Brian Coleman, Jimmy Zhivago album. I feel like I, I owe him. He brought so much to this. And I think that's why I can look at this album and be as proud of it as I am, because it's bigger than I am. Let's go ahead and introduce the second song. And she said from the opposite of time, 2016. So it sounds like even though Winter Clothes just came out this year, since he passed away in 2018, right, that you did a lot of this. It seems like it was a pretty continuous creative burst after your first album being, yeah. first solo being 2008, that you got your second 2016 and you're working on Winter Clothes pretty much immediately after that. Is that right? So that this opposite of time stuff, is this going to be Jimmy also playing on all this lead guitar stuff here on And She Said? Absolutely. I mean, Jimmy, like me, loves, you know, the birds and Gene Clark and Buffalo Springfield. And we'd recorded the opposite of time really quickly. The two of us with the singer Jenny Muldar, who sings with me on most of the tracks, though I don't think on this one. But this track is really fun for me and really what different from, I think, anything I've ever done. Because we had the album, I would say the album was finished and I went home and listened to it and it just felt sleepy. You know, it just felt a little too lazy. And I felt like I really wanted something that would just liven things up. I wanted to write and record something that would jump a bit. And I don't know how to write things to order. I really don't. But somehow this one just wrote itself as part of a, a strange conversation. You know, I love Skip James and I listen to a lot of uh, a lot of blues, but I love Skip James. But in temperament and in my work, I'm a lot closer to Henry James. 
And so with a song like this, I was trying to actually bring the two together. It feels like it should have been like a Latter-day Bird single. I'm just enormously proud of it. And it's one of those few times that I had a sound in my head and I got everyone together in the studio and we were able to get the sound down on tape or whatever the digital equivalent of tape is. And it just makes me happy. tried so hard to change the conversation But it only seemed to go from bad to worse She said men just have no interest in salvation I said women don't believe it unless it hurts And she said nothing is
this was such a joyful, what was the decision behind not having the female vocals on this one? That you're mostly harmonizing yourself on this, right? Just to kind of emphasize the mostly. and she said parts and things and very blistering. Is this also, Jimmy, doing the organ that's even more present on this one? Yeah, it's absolutely Jimmy. You know, I wish I could say that there was a, a method to the madness of having myself and, and Byron Isaacs do all the backgrounds. But the reality is that Jenny Muldar was out of town uh, touring. <laughs> okay. She was working on a Broadway show, which hasn't happened yet, but working on a show with Elvis Costello. And so she couldn't come in. So we had to do the harmonies ourselves. I don't know if other people have talked to you about this, but one of the hardest things in the world is to write a happy song. If I go back into songs that just elicit that sense of joy, you know, I Feel Fine by the Beatles and Sweet and Dandy by Toots and the Maytals or Everyday People by Sly and the Family Stone, they just have this sense of life and energy, probably almost everything by the birds. It's so easy to write heartbreak and it's so hard to write something that's just upful and joyful. And when you get it, it's such a gift. It's such a pleasure. And yet the lyrics of this are pretty much a big bummer. <laughs> Let's look at verse three. She said, time is like a circle. A circle's got no end. I was young before and I'll be young again. I guess this is still putting it in her voice. So it's like her trying to make it better that she's leaving you as opposed to having a, a final verse of, and now I'm walking on the beach and I'm feeling okay, reflecting about how it's better to love, have loved than lost, that kind of thing. No, from the narrator's point of view, nothing gets better or it's unstated, I should say. Nothing gets better, but nothing gets worse. Nothing is forever, including leaving. She never quite leaves. She never quite stays. That's the way we're living at the moment. I mean, that's the way I'm living at the moment. I'm, I'm in France. I'm in quarantine. <laughs> France just locked its doors down today. As of today, I need a piece of paper to be able to go out of the house and go to the store. I need to have like a permission slip the way, you know, in high school, you had to have a slip to go to the bathroom. You know, nothing is forever, including the lockdown. The lockdown will be over sometime. But at the moment, you know, we're all fucked. A nice purgatory that's been lasting for goddamn forever. And you can keep your internet life going on as normal, at least. Yeah. Try to think about just the lyrics in both these songs since we haven't really zoomed in on those. I guess for Killing the Dead, you're again kind of putting it into a woman telling the narrator something. And it's even similar, right? Everything changes. That's what she said as she was driving away is from the first song. Very similar to the messages in And She Said Where This Is a Permanent Leaving. But obviously something more abstract, which you were saying was from a literary source in She Was Off Killing the Dead. I mean, is that what does that even mean? Or is that something that you want to reveal? Or do you even know? I don't know, but not to get either strange or, or sexist, but I think women have a very different relationship with death than men do. And there's a practicality that women seem to incorporate that I can't fathom. I hadn't realized till I started talking to you right now, but a few years ago, I was here in the countryside and I called a friend of mine and the phone was ringing and ringing and I was about to hang up and suddenly she answered and she was really breathless. And I was like, oh, is everything okay? And she was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear the phone. I was outside drowning kittens. And it was like, I, I was wondering whether she was being funny, but you know, she's a farm girl. She was outside drowning kittens. And you would never, ever in a million years hear a man say that. You know, he might be outside like shooting deer, but it takes a woman to drown kittens. You know that. I don't know any human being <laughs> would be comfortable drowning kittens myself, but I don't live near a farm. So yeah, on a farm, that's what people do. 
you can't have a million cats. And so you pick one kitten from the litter and you take care of it and you love it and you feed it and you make sure that it's okay. And the others, you know, underwater. I couldn't do that. I hadn't noticed that being a gendered thing so much as just noticing extreme cultural differences. Even like, you know, I've got a friend who's Indian and seemingly in his family, you know, his whole family living in America for his whole life, but they seem to have an extremely practical, like constantly his parents, like, you know, when I die, this is how things are going to, whereas, I don't know, my father had to get to be in his mid eighties before there was any kind of talk like that. There just seems to be, you know, in America that we're just afraid to talk about death. And when he finally was in his mid eighties, what would he say? Well, now he's still alive now. He's 88, but he's always just trying to unload more stuff on me. He's, he's constantly trying to just pare down all of his belongings, like in a decade long kind of thing. But yeah, going through my mother passing away, you know, that definitely made it all very real. And we're going to talk about this in a way that we wouldn't have before, even when she was sick. Yeah. Well, but somehow it's easier to do it with objects. You know, it's very hard to talk about the idea that you're not going to be there, but it's much easier to sort of go, hey, you see that Thunderbird? That's going to be yours. And uh, or that desk that you've always liked. Well, you know, you can take that. Somehow that's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to transfer objects than it is to transfer the fact of disappearance. Trying so hard to change the conversation. <laughs> I just want to shift this back to the lyrics by quoting your lyrics about trying hard to change the conversation. So you have a gendered thing right right here in the beginning of And She Said. She said, men have no interest in salvation. I said, women don't go leave unless it hurts. I mean, you're describing a scene. Can you say a little about like, are you sort of thinking of these things like a short story rather than a personal eruption anecdote? You know, it is like a short story. It feels like the sort of song that you want to hear John Cheever sing. But the dirty little secret, especially in And She Said, is I'm probably taking the female role. I mean, everything that the woman says in there is something that I would say. And everything that the narrator says is something that my wife would probably say. So it's a nice gender reversal. It's fun to play that way. Randy Newman does that. Joni Mitchell does that very well, to the point where you almost forget that she's doing that. With me, I don't think you forget, but I don't have the, as good a sleight of hand. I don't have a good sampling here of what you wrote when you were younger. Certainly as I have gotten older, not only is it just less pressing to write, there's not a lot of adolescent life stuff that I have to get off my chest. It seems like older songwriters tend to be a little more, I'm writing fiction here. Are you channeling some of this stuff from memories from 20 years ago? I remember Dolly Parton talking about that, like how she just reuses the same conflicts from years and years ago. Or yeah, or are these just out of your imagination more or less? I had a funny wall. I started a record back around 1996 or 1997, and I did it in New Orleans at a friend's studio, and, and I had great players. I had amazing people, and I had, I think, really good songs, but for a lot of reasons, I never finished the album. One was that, you know, when we were talking about mortality, and my mother got really ill, and I became the primary caregiver, and that wasn't the only reason that I didn't finish the project, but it was a good excuse, and it was a real reason. And I sort of stepped away from writing songs and I stepped away from music. I was looking after her and then I was taking care of like all of her business dealings. And then after she passed, I had to basically coordinate everything with the family. I've got a pretty large and a pretty fractious family and I had to navigate who got what and when and where. I sort of was worn down. I, I really didn't have a lot of creative energy. And I guess around 2007 or 2008, and I'd pretty much forgotten about the New Orleans record. And a guy who was a manager and 
booking agent who had always been very nice to me called me up out of the blue. I hadn't talked to him for years and said that he was getting involved with a, a small label, I think in Minneapolis. And he wanted to know if they could put out my album from New Orleans, if I wanted to go and remix it and maybe add a song. And I was thrilled that someone was interested. I pretty much put that part of my life behind me. And then I went back and I listened to the album and something about it just felt phony. It just felt like the songs were good and the players were great. I mean, the players were amazing. So it was most of the guys who were the players in Treme, Cornell Williams playing bass and Raymond Weber on drums and Sid Straw, of course, came down and sang with me. And this guitarist, amazing guitarist, a guy named Big D. And Big D, of course, didn't have a phone. He didn't have a computer. He didn't have a, a steady home. If you wanted Big D to play on your session, there was a particular phone booth you had to go to down around uh, Tremaine. And you had to write a note and underneath the note, tape a quarter so that he could call you. Hey, we're going to do a session tonight at eight o'clock at the boiler room. And he would either call you or he would just show up. So, you know, the players were the problem, but I felt like everything about the songs was, was wrong. And I started to realize you know, you were asking before about my songwriting. Was I channeling something from an earlier time? What I realized was, you know, I was falling into a pattern where I was writing from the perspective of somebody who was sort of looking out their bedroom window, waiting for their life to begin. And my life was in progress. I started thinking, you know, instead of writing from like the point of view of an adolescent, what would it be like to actually write as a grown-up, as somebody who is thinking about their mortgage, who has a kid, who has to get up in the morning and take them to school, who's got to go to some sort of a weird parent-teacher conference and has to take them to school the next day. It's not just, oh, I've got to get up on Tuesday. I've got to get up on Wednesday. I've got to get up on Thursday. What would it be like to write with that consciousness there? And I started writing songs that felt different to me, that they might not feel different to anybody else. But it felt like I had turned a corner with my own writing and I was suddenly coming to things from a, I don't want to say mature because I don't think that I've gotten mature, but I, I'm acknowledging the fact that I've had a life. I have a home. I have a kid. I have a dog. I have a wife. I have, you know, obligations and those obligations aren't necessarily a bad thing. There's a thing in, inside of a lot of us that, I mean, songwriters, especially where you want to have this sense that you're a gypsy, that you're free, that you can like wake up in Cleveland one day and then be in the Bahamas the next. And I'm not sure that's what I want. So um, I feel like I started writing from a very different perspective. And that's freed me a lot as a songwriter, as a musician. It's also freed me as a singer where I feel like, you know, I've always been a sort of half-baked vocalist, but I feel like I can actually listen to my vocals on this album and not cringe. I feel like there's a looseness and there's a, sometimes a sloppiness that's necessary, and that's part of who I am. Well, let's play something from that first emergence from being too self-conscious to want to finish anything and release it from All Fires the Fire 2008, The Promise.
promise of the promised land Is that we'll end where we began And if we don't quite understand Well, that's all right My baby said she changed her mind She moved a little down the line She left a broken finish that story from when you had abandoned the song and matured to actually getting to this first solo album that released. I love this song and the song has nothing to do with me whatsoever. I'm channeling parts of the Wasteland, you know, T.S. Eliot, where he writes, I think at the beginning of the Wasteland, in my beginning is my end. And so here I'm in within a sort of a samba structure. The promise of the promised land is that we'll end where we began. And if you don't quite understand, 
That's all right. Again, it feels like this is very conversational and it feels like it's something you might overhear in a bar. This isn't me talking about my baby left me, although in the songs she does. You know, my baby said she changed her mind, moved a little down the line, left a broken valentine, but that's all right. This has nothing to do with me. And yet, in a weird way, sometimes as a writer, when you let your unconscious go, things that aren't necessarily about yourself are more revealing than things that you feel are autobiographical. All three of these songs sound very literary to me. And this one in particular with this, well, I hear the damned cannot say now, the past is all that we're allowed. You know, I was very much thinking of Elvis Costello's song, This Is Hell, one of my favorite of his. Just relating the lounge singer persona and being in a late night lounge to some kind of soft hell, let's say a purgatory. (laughs) And there's something about the structure of this song, too, that there's no relief. It's just stanza-based, right? You just go another stanza, another stanza. You'll change up the texture a little. You'll add a little female vocals. You know, you'll stop singing and the horns will do something. But it doesn't actually get to a chorus. It doesn't actually, like, have any release. So it's just, you know, this very nice, static, with, yeah, wonderful, is it that gets Gilberto thing, that sort of Latin jazz that you're channeling here? As much as possible. You know, João Gilberto is one of my heroes. Although I have friends who met him and said, it's not always a good idea to meet your heroes. You know, João Gilberto is the father of Bebel Gilberto. And a friend of mine, a wonderful uh, Brazilian singer and guitarist named Pierre Aderna, was working on a project with Bebel Gilberto in Brazil. And they were out late at night getting a drink somewhere. And as they were leaving a bar, they noticed there was a car parked right by the bar. And... They looked and it was João Gilberto, the genius of Brazilian music. And Bebel said, oh, Pierre, Pierre, I've got to introduce you. You've got to meet my dad, meet him. And they went running over to the car and she knocked on the window and he was asleep in the driver's seat. And he woke up and he looked and he saw her and did a double take and just turned on the ignition and drove away full speed. (laughs) Like, nope, I'm not letting you in. But yeah, there's there's an element of, you know, Jobim Gilberto, if I can flatter myself. I've actually been playing a little bit in Lisbon, working with some wonderful Brazilian and Portuguese musicians. And this is one of the songs of mine that they relate to and that they always want me to perform with them. It's really exciting because I don't have a loud or a very strong voice. You know, in the States, I can get away with it. You know, I've got a microphone. I've got people who can turn up the reverb. But in Lisbon, especially with Brazilian musicians, the way I sing and the way I play makes perfect sense to them because A lot of the great Brazilian music came out of the favelas where people were living in these apartments where the walls were paper thin and they'd be playing guitar at night and singing and they had to sort of whisper sing in order to be respectful of their neighbors. And a lot of the style of João Gilberto and Elis Regina and Gal Costa and of course Jobim comes out of that energy. So when I sing over there, it makes perfect sense. So of course I like it. And of course, a song like this, it's exciting for me to have something like this that I can give back into a culture that I've learned so much from. Well, that's interesting that you have this actually authentic relationship with the culture, whereas as a listener, just the way that this, it actually fit very well thematically with this, what I was calling this lounge singer hell, because what that do, 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 like that is, I don't want to say elevator music because it has a different connotation of this very light instrumental stuff, but like maybe it's just a bunch of films where that is like literally played in an elevator or it's supposed to conjure up the mundane in a way that goes very much with this 
oh, eternity might be like this sort of casual hell that you're describing here, but that's entirely unlike apparently, you know, how actual Portuguese people take this sort of music or your relationship to it. They don't have a lot of elevators there. <laughs> I don't think I've been in a building with an elevator. It's but we just take the stairs. So it's it's different and we and we whistle. Why this cheery I swear the word hell is in here somewhere. Maybe I'm just oh it's just the damned and the devil told me so. But it's such a nice cheery little song. And of course these horns are just wonderful. I mean, right from the first, that note in the uh, second half of the intro that comes in right before the beat. I thought it was a muted trumpet, but these are all saxes, right? Yeah, and clarinet. And that's all John Ellis, who's a just wonderful player. And those are all his ideas. I mean, the reality is, you know, I get these great players into the studio and I tell them what to do and they look at me like, yeah, just go sit down. We'll do something better. And they do. <laughs> and you say you don't know how to collaborate. Well, that's the easiest and best kind of collaboration. The kind that I do most is you're not trying to like fight each other over tweaking a lyric to make it better. You're just inviting great instrumentalists and saying, I have this canvas, please sprawl all over it and I'll fix it in the mix if I don't like it. <laughs> Exactly. And and sometimes they'll play something that I'll really hate. And then two weeks later, it's my favorite thing on the track. I don't know how it is for you, but sometimes my ears are really slow. And if I really love something, that might be because I recognize that it's something I've heard before or it's a pattern I'm used to. And if I hear something that I find really jarring and say, ah, I don't want that, suddenly it opens a bit of the song that you weren't even aware was there and it allows you to explore things in a way that is really exciting. I think the dirty secret or the weird little secret for most of us, you know, that write songs that do this sort of work, we really want to be surprised. You know, if I know where I'm going when I start a song, I can't be bothered to finish it. I really want to be excited and surprised. I really want it to take me somewhere I haven't been before. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. But when it happens, like it did with Killing the Dead, what a joy that is. Let's get back to the present. One of your singles, Wrong Birthday from Winter Clothes. This is a nice video up with sort of Grateful Dead connotations to me. Was that intentional? Skeleton bears and things or I don't know. No, but I, I've, you know, again, I love this song because it, it's so sloppy and it's just Byron and Jimmy and myself at this little studio in Long Island City. And Byron, who's a wonderful bass player, is actually playing drums on the basic track. And then he overdubbed a, a bass and did the vocals with me. But the cynical part of me, which comes out every once in a while, is like, how am I going to get some of my stuff heard? And hey, what if I wrote a birthday song? People would have to sing it at birthday parties. And I couldn't come up with a good happy birthday song. So I thought, oh, what if you're on the wrong birthday? What if you're at the birthday where, you know, it's the Mercury retrograde of birthdays? That's what this felt like, you know, just writing a corny, stupid song that, again, just made me happy. It was sloppy. It was really fun to do. And of course, at the end, Jimmy just sort of breaks into applause and starts whistling and clapping. And it's wonderful. That's the way all of our sessions should be. Well, thanks so much. I knew this was going to be reading some of your writing, that this was going to be a fun discussion and definitely uh, some different emphases that I've had with other folks who want to talk about their guitar gear or whatever. <laughs> so, Right. Thanks again. Cheers. Yo 
Thanks so much to Brian, a super interesting guy. We ended up talking more about his project in Portugal, Rodas Pretas, and he was asking me about my music. So there's another 10 minutes or so, plus I put in a song of his from that project that is bonus material you can only get at patreon.com slash music. You don't want to hear me do ad reads anymore, so go hook yourself up with that ad-free feed that I always post up there. My next episode will be Marcus Reuter. He's an amazing tap guitarist, much like Trey Gunn that I interviewed before, a member of the extended King Crimson family. He is one-third of Stick Men, along with Tony Levin and Pat Mastelato of King Crimson. He has a very wide sonic palette, a great improviser, but also writes contemporary classical music. Be sure to get that and all my upcoming episodes by subscribing directly to the Nakedly Examined Music Podcast through your favorite podcast app. You can find all the relevant links at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And I would really appreciate if you could leave a rating and review of the show. There's a nice little widget installed in the upper right of my homepage that will walk you through exactly how to do that. And please share episodes like this one that you think your friends would like on Facebook or wherever. Hope you're all doing well as we head into December. I've been doing more noodling on guitar, maybe writing a song, and have some ambitious, though a little risky, plans for creating something for the holiday, for this feed. We'll see if it happens. But it gives me something musical to focus on, so that's cool. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Mintzenmeyer signing off. <laughs>